You're listening to BuddhistGeeks.com, September 3rd, 2007. Episode 35, Theory, Yoga, and Art. In our last segment with art and meditation professor Robert Spellman, he shares with us a key distinction between the theoretical and the yogic, and how that important distinction relates to artistic practice. This is part three of a three-part series. This episode of Buddhist Geeks is sponsored by the Do No Harm Movement. To find out more about the Do No Harm Movement and to receive a free Do No Harm bumper sticker and wristband, please visit www.donoharm.us. to switch gears just a little bit. I think this is going to totally connect in with what we've been talking about. I wanted to see if um, if you would actually be willing to read a quote that I found on your website. I, at first I thought I'd read it, but then you wrote it, so I figured it'd probably be better for you to actually <laughs> read No, it. you say it. <laughs> read your own quote. Uh, and then, you know, I was thinking that would be a good a good way to jump into this topic of how creativity and the spiritual path, which you've already touched on a little bit here, how they really connect in uh, together. Okay. Cool. So take it away, Robert. Okay. <laughs> okay, this is a quote from my website, as you say. In my studio classes at Naropa University, I sometimes describe artistic discipline as comprising two areas of development, the theoretical and the yogic. Theoretical understanding arises from investigating the historical, philosophical, and technical application of any area of study. The second area of development, the yogic, derived from the Sanskrit word yoga, which means joining or union, is how a practitioner of a discipline becomes one with the activity at hand. I have been interested in developing this yogic understanding since my time in art school, it has led me to an intensive investigation of mind as it is understood in the Buddhist philosophical systems of India and Tibet, wherein the nature of mind and experience is examined minutely. This entails a methodical and sometimes arduous dismantling of preconceived ideas about reality. One begins to glimpse non-duality. Should probably say, with luck, one begins to glimpse non-duality, the absence of separation between mind and phenomena, subject and object, inside and outside. This non-dual joining or yoga must occur experientially, not theoretically. Those who have followed this inquiry to its fruition serve as brilliant examples of clarity and accuracy of being. Nice. Yeah, I I was struck by that uh, when I was actually in your class. I I read that, and there's something fascinating about the connection that you seem to be making there. And I imagine that, you know, using this theoretical and yogic, like any discipline really um, potentially could be taken to that kind of yogic level where you're kind of pushing it so far that maybe, at least in some fashion, you start to get a sense of, of this higher I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe, maybe you could actually say a little bit about this. And is it related to any kind of discipline? If you take it far enough with with this yogic kind of intention, I I think so. I 
I wouldn't use the word higher. I'd use the word more thorough. Mm. You know, it's not uh, like a, that it would be a higher um, experience as, um, as much as to say that it would be a more thorough experience. Mm. I think with the way that uh, a lot of things are studied, what we end up studying is the ideas about something rather than the thing itself. Mm-hmm. And that, that's true, you know, whether you're talking about a, 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 an academic discipline or even just um, when we're looking at ourselves. We have ideas about ourselves. Um, and we tend to uh, behave most of the time only in relation to the ideas about ourselves that we have. Mm-hmm. So we, have, we never quite get to the actual you know, who are we anyway? Because mm. we're always, uh, we, we're dealing with the ideas about, rather, the ideas about, rather than the thing itself. Mm. It's kind of like the difference between um, a photograph of something and the thing itself. Mm-hmm. That a photograph can be extremely uh, sharp and vivid and take in an amazing amount of information, um, but it's never. It's only going to be um, a representation of the thing, mm-hmm. you know. So it can never be the thing itself. Mm-hmm. I think, um, as an uh, in a similar way, uh, concepts can never be the thing itself. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's the the difference between um, a theoretical understanding and a yogic understanding. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was reading this, I thought I, I might reword something at the end of that to say that uh, it's when I say this non-dual joining. Or yoga must occur experientially, not theoretically. We could flip that around slightly and say that a theoretical understanding just isn't enough. It's not complete. Mm. So that's what I mean by saying that um, it's a more thorough engagement if you if you join these two. Mm. Uh, and in fact, you could and you could flip that around further and say uh, that if you cut out the theoretical understanding altogether, you're liable to just be um, kind of a um, I don't know how what you'd call it. Uh, that is is also not complete. You actually have to have both, like a vegetable. Yeah, sort kind of. Yeah, a meditative vegetable. Right, or you just sort of beam and smile knowingly at the world without, right? You know, without having any uh, any way of engaging the world. Uh, uh. So I think uh, both are necessary, and I I wouldn't set them in a hierarchical relationship to one another. Okay, so would you say that the theory could come before or after? One's really come to more thoroughly. Yeah, that's a good question, and I think people will have been debating this for a long time. That I think, um, my own experience, uh, in my own experience, it was the experience that had to come first, Mm. and then filling in the theoretical later. And I tend to teach that way. Interesting. uh, When I'm teaching art disciplines, especially, is to try to uh, shove people directly into an experience of of their artistic nature or whatever term you want to use. Um, and then fill in the theoretical later and say, okay, so and so did this in the 1500s, and last week so and so did that, and you know that you can you can start to fill in the context later. Uh, where on the other hand, some people are exactly the opposite. They have to have the theoretical understanding first before they can have any reason to do the thing. Right, right. Like there there needs to be some sort of rationale for yeah really committing oneself to something before yeah. Where they actually do it, yeah. Which I, I tend to relate a little more to that to that second, uh, and the, yet I know a lot of people, my wife being one, who she just tends to jump right into things, and then later will kind of come up with a language or models to try to understand mm-hmm. what she's already experienced. So it's it's a it's a strange difference in some ways. 
Yeah, I sometimes think of it in a temporal way, you know, that this precedes that. Yeah. And and that, that there's no fixed solution or formula for it, you right. know, that, that it's going to be different for different people. Yeah. And in the actual fact or in the actual experience, I suspect that they're um, alternate. Yeah. You know, you hear a piece of theory, you have a piece of experience, you get another sure. piece of theory, you have another piece, and then you say, oh, look, that links up to this. Kind of like a like a sine wave, kind of just going up and down to theory and then experience and kind of yeah. fluctuating or modulating. Between the two. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one theoretical way to understand what we're talking about. That's right. And the other is to just experience it, I guess. Right. <laughs> but I think that... Um, uh, art is an interesting discipline uh, because it. My experience is that it, um, if you fill uh, people up with too much theory uh, when they're artistic, when they're you know they're doing some artistic practice, it actually can uh, can confuse people for a long, long time. Mm. Um, I have I can't prove this, but I've observed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that people who study too much theory before they learn how to just play the music, say the lines, make the marks. Uh, if they have too much theory uh, first, they're always going to be uh, trying to fit what they're saying and doing uh, into something that's, you know, that's, that's already there rather than uh, something that is spontaneously arising. Mm. And uh, a lot of people would debate me on this, but... Sure, sure, but that, I mean, that's, I mean, that's a good, good observation Considering you've been teaching art a long time, I'm mm-hmm. sure holds some some weight. Yeah, well, and it's also autobiographical because when I was in art school, uh, we had a tremendous amount of theory uh, that was given to us, and I I spent about the first 15 years being out of art school trying to fit myself into this uh, framework that had been created mm. uh, by a whole constellation of preconceived ideas and art criticism and theory and this and that and. And I know a lot of people who are, uh, I would almost say, permanently paralyzed by that. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're not uh, practicing art because they can't uh, they can't figure out how to how to get outside of the the capsule of theoretical understanding that they were given. Mm. Interesting. One thing I was I was wondering about. Uh, there's a common distinction in in contemplative practices around the world. You don't use this language. This is kind of Buddhist language, but between shamatha and vipassana. Like stabilizing the mind and then investigating phenomenon that arise in the mind. I'm wondering, do those two qualities relate to the artistic discipline in any fashion? I suspect it'd probably be really helpful if your mind was pretty calm and clear to actually uh, engage in creative work. But I'm wondering if the same is true with with investigation, uh, that quality of of inquiry, mm-hmm. how that fits in, maybe how those concepts maybe fit in with artistic discipline. when you say inquiry you're, you're uh, talking about vipassana yeah you know? like yeah. In- investigation or inquiry or kind of uh, quest- questioning mm-hmm. yeah so, uh, sometimes um, I think uh, it was uh, Chogyam Tongpa described uh, vipassana is, uh, is introducing the intellect and the conceptual mind back into meditation you know at first it has to be somewhat suspended you have to just start by stabilizing the mind mm-hmm. and if you're continuously asking questions about why how and what and if you're doing it and what's mm-hmm. the context and blah 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 you, your mind will not be stable it's going to be completely preoccupied with its own conceptions so those have to be somewhat set aside mm. i wouldn't say somewhat they have to be set aside mm-hmm. um, 
for a period of time. And then uh, when the mind is stable, then uh, you, you could reintroduce them. Mm. That's one way of describing it, which, of course, is going to, differ, is going to vary from person to person. But that's, uh, that is a very uh, commonly described sequence. Mm. And is that, is that similar to what you just described with, um, with your students? That the kind of, you're teaching, in a sense, shamatha of art first and then kind of introducing the, the, the conceptual back end? Yeah, I think you could say that. You could say that, although there are different ways of doing it, because another description of Vipassana is that it, uh, you're, um, you're just s- simply extending the, um, the awareness, the meditative awareness, or the meditative stability, you're extending it outward into a larger field. Mm. So that, uh, from an art pract- a point of view artistic practice, that's probably a natural development. You know, not, not that you would, you know, you just begin with a certain thing and then you just move out from that. Mm-hmm. more, uh, you know, as a natural progression. Mm-hmm. And do you, do you think these relationships we're talking about, like one's in kind of more meditation arena and the other's in art, are these just patterns that, that tend to be in these two different things? Or do you think, you know, the, the common cliche is, oh, uh, running's my meditation, or, you know, art's my meditation, mm-hmm. or um, like these different activities that people do is their meditation is it actually possible to take an activity, no matter what it, or, or you know, within a certain, you know, within a certain limits, like, and actually use that activity? Do you think to, yeah. to reach the same kind of understanding? I mean, this is heavily debated too. It's heavily debated, and I've attempted it uh, uh, and failed so many times that I would say no. <laughs> but that's my own, you know, that's my own experience that I, I have attempted to just, you know. Uh, dispense with the formal meditation practice and just be ah interesting you know uh, sort of be a painter and be a talker or a walker or an eater or something right and um i can't interesting i I'm, but that's again it's a very personal I, I i find that i have to actually formally sit down take a posture and review the instructions almost as though i never heard them before and begin every day mm you know, it's sort of. I think that it's because, in in my own uh, case, and I think I'm not alone here, that the habits of mind are so deeply rooted um, that we can't uh, underestimate them. Mm. At the same time, I think um, having a an activity that is joined with meditation practice is really good. And this gets back to an earlier concern that you had about the, you know, people becoming sort of gray personality personality less or something mm-hmm. that um, I like the combination of art and meditation because art is very uh, can be very exposing mm. you know you're, you're having to make statements you're having to write things and say things and make music and you know whatever your form mm-hmm. is and there's something about um, the challenge that meditation presents to do that um, genuinely and honestly mm. and and appropriately and and Appropriate's a funny word to use here. By that, I just mean that it's um, uh, you're not faking it. Mm. You know, there's there's nothing gratuitous about it. If you're going to have violence in your movies, uh, that you you're doing it for a reason that actually you know that that has a reason, not just to shock people or to be um, unique mm. or whatever. It's really interesting that point you bring up. What I'm thinking about is kind of the the Buddhist. Uh, notion of ethics and really watching the ways that you act in the world and how like a creative discipline is all about the ways that you act in the world or the like the statements that you're making the, the creations that you're creating 
and you're intentionally creating and doing stuff. Whereas in a lot of ethics, Buddhist ethics, a lot of the time it's about watching that you don't do certain things, like that you don't harm others, that mm-hmm. you don't. So I, I can see it a real interesting either combination or conflict happening with those two, uh, maybe both. Yeah, well, I think it's, um, you know, and this is another way of talking about the uh, shamatha and vipassana thing, is that the vipassana part of it is what is the effect uh, in a larger context. Mm. You know, if you make a film, um, people will see the film, and the film will affect their minds. Right. If you make a painting or write a book or do something, it, it actually is going to have effects on people uh, who might be thousands of miles or even centuries away from you. Mm-hmm. So what is, you know, what, what is your intention at the moment of creating the thing, and what kind of an effect is it likely to have? Mm. And um, I don't think this uh, rules anything out exactly. It's not as though everything should be sort of nice in a new age, sort of simple-minded way at all. Right, it's, right. Uh, it could be uh, very vivid. It could, have all, it could have any kind of, it doesn't leave anything out. But uh, I think the intentionality of the person doing it, uh, especially when you're talking about joining meditation and artistic practice, the, mm. the intentionality or the intention of the person is uh, crucial. Mm. It sounds to me like they could be a really powerful joining. Yeah, I think they are. And, they, and it's, this is not a new idea Sure. either. John Dido Lurie um, is the abbot of Zen Mountain Monastery in Tremper, New York. And he has uh, been teaching very contemporary artistic forms and Zen meditation mm. uh, in a monastic setting. Interesting. Yeah. And he has a lot of very interesting things to say about this. Interesting. So for all those creative uh, Buddhist geeks, maybe check out John, John Dido Luri. John Dido Luri. Yeah. yeah. Zen Mountain Monastery in Tramper, New York. Nice. He wrote a book called, uh, I think it's The Zen of Creativity or Creativity and Zen. Nice. Something. It's quite a we'll, good book. We'll, we'll put the link up and people can check it out. Great. Nice. So yeah, th- those were the main the main things I thought would be uh, interesting to discuss with you. And I was wondering if you wanted to uh, bring up anything else that we didn't get to discuss or, or maybe revisit any of the points we made, expound on them, um, any of the above or none of the above. I'm probably going to think of all kinds of things at about... 11.30 tonight while I'm lying in bed. Oh, why didn't I say this? <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Okay, great. Yeah, great. Thank you so much for coming by. We, we're Our studio is actually in Boulder, and you're in Boulder, so it's really nice that you could just drop in. Um, and actually, just, just kind of set the context for this discussion, he actually, uh, Robert came in here, and he was a little bit winded and had just uh, rode his bike over here, so... Uh, really cool. We're, we're not going to have to uh, give him any parking validation. <laughs> to save a dollar! <laughs> cool. Thank you. I really appreciate you coming in uh, Thanks for and having chatting. Me. Thanks for great. having me. Cool. I think what you're doing is great. Cool. Thank you so much. This has been a presentation of BuddhistGeeks.com. Copyright 2007. Music in this podcast provided by c for chaos For more great music and writing, visit his blog at www.c4chaos.com. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th 
in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.